Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest this week is a businesswoman, broadcaster, curator, tastemaker and DJ. She headlines festivals, hosts one of BBC Radio 1's flagship shows, was Europe's biggest female DJ and she has her own hit podcast, Changes with Annie Mack. And now, as if that wasn't a bloody enough because let's not forget the two kids. She's written her first novel, Mother Mother. Oh, and she's cool and nice in the best possible way, not in that I'm too lazy to think of a proper adjective kind of way. I do think that being in your 40s, in my experience, because I'm only two and a bit years in, is possibly like the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Over the next 45 minutes, Annie talks about the unexpected impact of turning 40 growing up with her fans and why middle-aged women are a force to be reckoned with. She's candid about saying goodbye to DJing and how it feels to start again professionally, why she's a control fan and how she learned to be comfortable in her own skin. Plus, she gives me a lesson in radical knowness. Annie, thank you so much for all your time. Really appreciate it. Can we start with where you are? Are you in a box room? Are you in the rave shed? Where are you? I'm in a little room at the back of our house that is turned into my writing room, actually. So it's really cosy. I can see the snow falling out the window, which is particularly cosy because uh, I'm nice and warm. And there's a piano in here and some bookshelves and loads of tech, loads of wires. My husband also uses it for his stuff, uh, especially in lockdown. He's been producing songs in here and stuff, so we share it. And it's got a bit of offspring art over your shoulder. Exactly, yes. There's some arts, various notes. And my whiteboard over there, which I been meaning to put on the wall for a long time and haven't but that's just kind of random ways of scheduling my days sometimes I come in and I have like five or six hours when the kids aren't here and I get so overwhelmed with all the stuff I want to do that I find that if I just write out a schedule (laughs) for the five hours and kind of place everything in those hours it really helps the stuff that you do, honestly, you're a superhuman woman with everything and then the podcast on top and then the book on top of that and two kids. I cannot wait for the day when I get to ask a bloke this question. But how did you stop the two kids fucking up your career? So at the start, I just charged on. You know, I had a nanny I've, and both me and my husband are so lucky to have parents who are willing to get involved and would come down and stay for weekends when I'd be away DJing or touring. So at the start, I didn't. And it wasn't until my second kid came along that I really kind of stopped and was like, OK, what am I doing? And uh, in the last couple of years, I've really 
changed what I've done. But I think that might be partly because of turning 40 as well, which I know is applicable for this conversation. I do think that being 40 and kind of stopping and looking backwards in my life and kind of coming out of the fog of tiredness that my youngest not sleeping had kind of put me in, that's when I stopped and was like, okay, this isn't sustainable. Basically, I can't keep going in this way. I can't keep trying to do everything. And it's not actually an enjoyable way to live. So yeah, I didn't let them stop me because I had childcare and I just kept going basically. I also, I have to say, after the first kid, I did get very good, probably too good at saying no and said no to a lot of things and and turned down a lot of things. So I kind of became a little bit more focused in terms of streamlining what I really wanted to do after the first. And then at the second, I became militant at it. I don't think there's any such thing as too good at saying no. I love saying no. It's something I'm really into. (laughs) Have you got any any tips for militant (laughs) no-ness? Um, being able to say no well you have to know yourself and what you want to do and what you don't want to do so that's the hardest bit is figuring Mm -hmm. out what you want when you know that the no's are easy you know you can just bat stuff away like a ninja you know it's it's easy because it's like this doesn't fit into what I need and what I want so for me the learning how to say no was preceded with learning who I was and what I needed in order to function and be a happy thriving person and that was what felt like the achievement finally being able to stop for long enough to kind of get some perspective and look inside at what I'm doing and be like okay this isn't sustainable this isn't working this is what you care about this is what you don't care about so let's start saying no that's so huge I think you did that like 10 years before most women do it I mean I can't speak about motherhood because I'm not a mother but you know for many women I've spoken to the menopause has been that kind of kicking point when they're like hang on who am I and why am I so it's really interesting that you got there so much earlier why do you think it was I think that I was living my life in fast forward it felt Mm. like that anyway and there was a point where I had to start trying to live in the present and there was reasons for living life in fast forward because when you DJ when your career is based on uh, performing and and doing gigs you're always having to think ahead so normally in February I would be accepting gigs for kind of October November you know the fourth quarter of this year so you're always having to plan ahead and think ahead and what happened was I got to a point where I started feeling less and less excited and passionate about doing these gigs I've been doing for years and everything that came with doing those gigs the tiredness the weekend uh, jet lag the feeling like I wasn't on a level with the crowd that I was playing to all of that stuff on a level in terms of they're wasted and I'm sober like it's kind of it's a combination of a few levels (laughs) older definitely being one of those so yeah you're just forced to look ahead all the time and in order to be able to put the brakes on that you have to at some point just be like I don't know how I'm going to feel in October it's February now you know, how do I want to feel in October? What do I want my life to look like then? There was a kind of a situation where I feel like I was forced to look ahead and confront who I was going to be and where I was going in my life that maybe other people don't have because of the nature of their jobs. It sounds like, I'm listening to you talk, like a kind of a a really strong central core of self-confidence almost. I don't know whether self-confidence is the right word, but like 
okay, this is me, mm. and I know that. Mm. I guess there is, yeah, there's an element of that, of knowing who I am, maybe being comfortable with who I am, to the point where there's an element of conviction in those choices. Yeah, I feel comfortable in my own skin, maybe, if that's what you mean. Yeah, I guess so. It's just really interesting. Knowing how long it took me to get to that point, just like too bloody long. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. I don't know. People have said that before, and I don't really spend a long time trying to dissect the reason why that would be. Um, it might be something to do with being the fourth of four and being left alone to kind of figure out myself from a young age, not having a lot of fuss over me. I don't know. I love all that, kind of trying to find out the psychological reasons behind why people are the way they are, but I've never done it to myself. <laughs> I like doing it to other people. Yeah, so it's way easier sitting on this side of the mic, isn't it? Going, yeah, and why do you do that? And why do you think that? Well, you're probably used to being both sides of the mic now. Which do you prefer? I think I prefer your side. For this kind of interview, it's exciting to me because it's a different type of interview where we're talking about the real person who I am right now, a woman in my 40s who's changing direction. And I'm excited to talk about that. But I do love being on the other side. I mean, it's become a huge and much loved part of my livelihood and it's also something that I feel like I'm nowhere near through learning there's so much improvement there and I'm excited about the idea of getting better as an interviewer it seems to me like you're a person who likes a challenge it's almost like you get to a point where you're like at the top or near the top and you go oh let's let's start one of those or let's learn how to do that mm. is it the learning or the challenge or boredom it's, or? it's not really that it's interesting because like getting to the top of if that's what you call it of doing what I was doing in the music world and the DJ world there's still so far to go and I could have gone way 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 further in that regard if I pushed myself and sacrificed more in my life so I always feel like I've held back a lot in that world and there's been a conflict there because as a woman and as a lone woman in that world I felt kind of like I should be proving a point but equally I didn't want to change my life that much to the point where I would have to if you know what I mean so there's that element but I think the main thing that I've realized in the last couple of years is that that top was fun and oh, I don't want to belittle it in any way because it meant so much to me and still does but I think what I've understood in the last few years having had the space to think about what I want is that the podcasting and the writing the actual creating rather than the curating is where my real passion lies and where it's always been from when I was young writing journals and studying English lit and uni and all that I've always wanted to write but I've just never had the time and the headspace to do it so it feels like a kind of an awakening of sorts right now if that doesn't sound too pretentious where I'm able to just finally give myself the headspace to be a creator and there's a total terror in it where I feel vulnerable and I'm used to as you said being on the other side being the curator the critic and now I'm mm -hmm. laying myself bare and it's pretty scary but it's super exhilarating for that so it's not really about a challenge. I didn't go, I want to prove that I can write a book. It's more just something that I've kind of always wanted to do. Yes, it's like you've gone from being the person who is credited with breaking other people's careers, the person who gets to say what's good and who isn't. And how did it feel to see the proofs of your book? Beautiful God. proofs oh God. of your book That's going terrifying. out. It's the world. I've read it. You've nothing to worry about. Oh, my God. You're oh, fine. my God. Yeah, it felt amazing. Like, I was counting down the days. It didn't feel real until I had it in my hands and it looked like a book. The, it reads no... like a book as well. Okay, that's a massive relief. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> like, no matter how, how much you can see it on a screen, it's, you know, as you know, it doesn't feel real until it looks like a book and it's in your hands as a book. And that was a really big moment. Then I panicked because there's loads of mistakes in it. 
And then I panicked even more because I knew that it was being sent out to loads of people and with all these mistakes in it. And, you know, I have a certain way of working and, and have done in my life as someone who's uh, run businesses and own businesses and kind of I'm a control fan. I don't like a <laughs> freak because I'm not ashamed of wanting to have control and be in control of my career. But the elements of that I found difficult in terms of book writing, mm-hmm. but I'm learning a lot about how it all works. This whole process of soliciting people for quotes, I found that really hard. I don't like asking people for help. I don't like asking people for time. I've never had to do that. So I found that very difficult. But again, I'm learning the publishing industry is really nice and people seem to really Mm. want to support people and back people up and, and encourage people. And I've been really bowled over by the sense of community that I'm starting to learn about in this world of book writing and just how supportive it is. It's so lovely. I think people will always help you if they can and they will also return the favour as well. Right. You know, if you've been kind to someone or supportive or just help them out or they always return the favour rather than mm. moving on and going next. I was listening to, I don't know, one of your many podcasts. And you described yourself as a fair weather writer and said, oh, maybe in my 60s, I'll get that. So <laughs> what, what fast forwarded your writing from 60 to 40? I was literally sitting with my husband last night and I was telling him that I was going to do this interview today and I said I was nervous about it because I haven't really done an interview where I've talked about why I've become a writer and I said to him I was like why did I do it can you remember like what was it what was it like that made me do the course and he was like I don't know you just always wanted to do it didn't you I think I think like it was the summer of 2018 I turned 40 and that you know didn't feel like a big deal at the time I didn't have some mad big party or anything. It just it was just a passing of a, of a moment that I think afterwards I started feeling the repercussions of it. And afterwards I started thinking, OK, who am I now as someone who's 40? And I started looking backwards for the first time in my life at the last 15 years of running around the world and gallivanting and mm-hmm. being a DJ. And I really felt this urge to want to try and learn something. It wasn't about, again, you know, setting myself a challenge or anything like that. It was about this kind of urge to learn learn something new and because I knew that writing was something I'd always wanted to do and not writing a novel was something I'd always wanted to do and I didn't trust myself because I'm really impulsive to start one and finish one I needed help and so yeah I enrolled in this writing course which was six months long it involved meeting a tutor every three weeks and delivering 5,000 words in those three weeks and and it was one-on-one and very intensive and I came out the other end of it with 35,000 words that I had been kind of not forced to but there was deadlines I had to meet people who were expecting things and it really helped just that discipline initially Mm. it really helped me to get off the ground so yeah I think it was a combination of just turning 40 and just feeling this real kind of visceral urge to try and learn something new it was a reaction I guess to to that age and passing that mark so any extent were you starting to feel a bit like you weren't the kind of youngest kid on the decks anymore and you you wanted to do something different or nothing to do with that really yeah and I mean 100% it's that I mean I've been feeling that for a while but I mean it's funny because DJing isn't actually that much of a young man's game and I say young man because it is predominantly men Um, there's a lot of older men DJs out there who I respect and have a lot of time for from your David Rodigans to your you know your Pete Tongs who are men in their 60s you know dance music is relatively young as a genre and there's people who've been there from the start that are DJing that are still still DJing but I do understand it's different for women and maybe it's not different for women but I personally felt like it was a hard slog to go to uni balls and be DJing to kids who are 18 years old. I don't know, I just felt too old for it 
in a way. I felt like I'd kind of grown out of it and, and they deserved someone who was mad for it and young and wanting to be on their level and rather than wanting to go home because they needed six hours sleep before the kids get up tomorrow. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. that's how I was feeling. And, and I, I mean, it's just the truth. It's just how I was feeling at the time. So I did feel more and more like life was getting in the way of my schedule and my working life, as in the rest of my life, my life choices, my family and all of that biz. And I felt like it was harder and harder to sustain both of them. So, you know, I changed the nature of my gigs. I do gigs that are different now for kind of a bit of an older crowd and I get to play more music that I like. And that is sustainable and that's brilliant. You know, mm. it's kind of changing who you're playing to and the type of events you're playing at. But it still remains the same that DJing messes up your sleeping pattern and when you have young kids who get up early in the morning, it's very hard to DJ at the weekends when you are trying to be there for them. And equally, I must say, I got this job in 2015 that meant I was on the radio every day. So yeah. that really changed things for me as a DJ because I was then working seven days a week and that was too much. So I had to kind of really try and limit my work to Friday nights so that I had a couple of days off every weekend that I could just be there for them. Well, tell us about Mother Mother Tell the listener about about the story and where it came from so the book is set in belfast and it's a dual narrative where you are in the head of a woman called mary who is in her late 30s and you're also in the head of her son tj who wakes up in the house that he shares with his mum on a Saturday morning and she's not there. So the story is you're with TJ on his journey to figure out where his mum has gone and why she might have gone anywhere. And then you're also with his mum Mary in the present on her journey in a slightly more abstract fashion at the start. But you're also going back and you're learning about Mary and you're getting these kind of zoomed in scenes of different periods of her life that have kind of all added up to contribute to her state of mind in the present. So it's a bit of a journey book. There's a lot of movement in it in terms of you're traveling around the city of Belfast. You're hopefully very much in a situation where you are kind of invested in Mary and her life and her journey as, as a young girl into a woman. And I don't want to kind of reveal what the end is, but... Oh God, no, no spoilers. Uh, it's bleak. It's kind of bleak, isn't it? I, re I finished the book and I was like, God, I've really written a fucking bleak book. I kind of surprised myself with how bleak it was a little bit. And when I went into the publishers and the head of the publishing company sat at a boardroom table and was like, where did this book come from? I'd never been asked that question before. You're the second person to ask that question. And the answer is, I don't know. Like I can look into the book and I can see people in my life. I can see experiences in my life. But in terms of the actual story, there wasn't a burning story there that I needed to write. What I learned in the process of writing was that sometimes it's okay to start with a scene and allow that scene mm -hmm. to become bigger and, and allow yourself to colour it in and like a kind of spider's web to, to grow bigger and to grow strands. And that's what happened. Basically, it started with a scene and then it grew. And I realised as I was writing TJ, who was originally supposed to be the main kind of character of the book, and still is in a way, that the Mary character was one that felt more natural and easy for me to write. So I kind of switched and focused more on her throughout. I mean, it's sad. I don't know if it's bleak. Okay, good. Somebody, I saw a quote, was it Una Mulally? Did she use the word melancholy? Yeah. That feels like a good word. But also, we can't really talk about this because it would be massively spoilery. But I absolutely loved what you did at the very, very, very end. I'm so happy that you loved that because I was so worried about it. 
not misery. No. You know, it, it's melancholy. And I'm really sorry to anybody listening going, well, tell us, because I absolutely can't. But I think <laughs> when you read it, you'll get to the end and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, because I think that is a really big moment for a lot of women. And it symbolises what we've been talking about with you turning 40 and self, you know. To me, it felt like this was the moment where herself could come to the fore. Mm, that's amazing. I don't amazing. know whether I'm yeah. putting too much no, into it. It's what I wanted. I wanted to convey this kind of parallel happenings of a mother who always, always, always thought of anyone but herself and, and, and was kind mm. of obsessively um, holding her life up through the nurturing of others and a son who in a very teenage, typical way, was only interested in himself, you know, in, in that quite self-centred way that you don't really look outside and worry about too much. Maybe I'm generalising here about, you know, what your mother's thinking, basically, mm. and how the parallel happenings of those kind of journeys. So TJ kind of finally learning to look outside himself and Mary finally looking in and kind of confronting what's in there and hopefully wanting to nurture herself for the first time ever. <laughs> Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Do you think you could have written it if you hadn't done your own bit of introspection I don't know Sam maybe maybe the introspection that I did served that book in the way that it did you know I started writing it just after becoming 40 and then it happened over the course of a year and in the space of the writing of it in that year I did have a very big shift and maybe some of that did come out in the page where I kind of took the reins of my life and slowed it all down and the act of writing as well was really justifying and vindicating all of these doubts of trying something new because I was loving it so much like I couldn't get over how much I loved the process and I understand that novel writing can be an absolute pain in the arse and I'm sure if I'm lucky enough to keep writing novels I will reach that point but just this first one for me was so enjoyable because it was so liberating and so freeing and as we said years of kind of looking at art and studying art and talking about it and playing it actually creating it was just the most it was it was like an epiphany of sorts for me and that's along with the kind of pulling back the reins of my dj career at the same time and being like whoa everything just slow down and stop i'm doing this and it feels great and i want this to be a bigger part of my life now i can see how maybe that did subconsciously get into the book somehow yeah i'm interested that you love the process i kind of hate the process I think it's because I'm a journalist and like you were talking about when you were first learning and you were given the deadlines. 
Right. And that helped you into the process. I'm utterly deadline dependent. And that's one of the reasons right. I love doing the podcast is that, A, I love nosing in other people's lives. But also, you know, give me a day that I have to do it by and I'll do it. But if yeah. you don't, I'm just like, yeah. I just can't make myself. Do you find it easy to kind of get up in the morning and go, right, thousand words before lunch? Or how do you um, do it? Well, I think because of the nature of how I'm writing at the moment, where I, I still have so little time to do it, it still feels like a novelty and a bit of a treat to be able to do it so mm. I think that's it's a big part of it for me it's like right I've got an hour to sneak in some writing so I'm going to sneak it in so it's kind of that it's like the idea of being able to do it rather than having to do it again because of the nature of having shit loads of other stuff on in my life I was worried because when I was trying to finish up Mother Mother I got a weekend to use my friend's office in London at this empty office and I just said I just need this weekend I just need to have time with the book and nothing else because it's all the pernickety shit the dates and the you know all of that stuff that needs to be on point and you just need to have a big wall full of fucking post-it notes and make sure that everything is clicking with everything and going away and coming back to that is just so annoying so I had like two days where I went from like nine in the morning till literally one or two in the morning every day and I just got so lost in it it was such a buzz honestly and I remember cycling home on Boris bikes both of those nights just being like wow that was amazing because I didn't have to think about anything else but that and just time just flew and again I know this will not always be the case and I'm sure if I got to a situation where all I had to do every day was write I'm sure that I would find it difficult but for now because it's time that is squeezed and eked out of an already busy schedule doing other shit it's golden time and and I love it and I'm learning about how to do it still because I'm writing something new at the moment and I'm learning that if I just write something even if it's shite it's better than writing nothing so I'm just trying to exercise that muscle of just writing and that's what I'm doing is it fiction or non-fiction it's fiction again very much fiction I realize that the way I've done everything is very upside down and topsy-turvy and it was very hard to get this book published initially because people were just like what the fuck like why aren't you writing about clubs and raving like you are this person that we associate you with mm-hmm. that everyone associates you with you should be writing about music you should be writing a memoir and obviously I did it all the wrong way around and there was conversations about should I go away and write a memoir first but um I can't really write a memoir because I can't be truthful I'd be fired <laughs> yeah. so so I you know I don't, I don't want to write a memoir either I want to write fiction is what I've always wanted to write so it took a while for people to understand and to be able to put me next to the book it took a long time and it was a bit worrying for a while but there was one editor who got in touch after 24 hours of receiving the proof to say that she cried her eyes out and could she meet and that was the editor that we went with and I was so happy that that was the editor that ended up publishing the book because she read it and enjoyed it for the right reasons for the reasons I wanted her to yeah people will always say well you've already got a profile so that helps you that's giving you a leg up and in a way it is but in another way it's going well you have to do this thing because this is who we think you are (laughs) and what you've done is go no this is who I think I am yeah and this is what I want to do. And I think it's really impressive that you stuck with that and that your team as well didn't like pile in on you and go, do the other thing first, Annie. 
and mm. then you can do that thing. Uh, it's interesting again, just learning about how books work, like just how long they take to come out. Initially, I was like, that's just untenable. Like when they agreed to publish it, it was a year and a half before they'd put it out. I was like, that what the like? But I'm so happy in retrospect because I needed a year of that to do about 13 more drafts and get it right and really hone it. I probably could have done about another five more if I was allowed, to be honest. But I just yeah. so I, I was happy for that time. But also what that time afforded me was the chance to slowly start changing course publicly you know doing a podcast where I speak to all sorts of people beyond music writing little bits here and there short form and just allowing people to start perceiving me in in a different way so it's actually been really handy in that way for the length of time for people to hopefully start seeing me as someone who might be able to write a book I'm sure there's a whole audience of people from changes your podcast who I mean know your background but don't think of you as Annie Mac dance mm. rave they think of you as changes and mm. that those more kind of intimate human conversations that are completely in keeping with what you've written i mean it's been interesting because a lot of the people that started out as people who would buy tickets to shows or listen to my radio shows so started out investing in that rave public persona which was always just me it wasn't a persona it was just me doing lots of gigs they've grown up with me a lot of people who listen to changes because we see the kind of data of who listens of kind of women who are in their 30s and 40s who've grown up with me and grown out of that side of things with me and still obviously love music and dancing but they have to do it in a different way or not as intensely and that's lovely because it feels like I haven't lost people but I'm changing with them and there's something quite nice about that well there's a community isn't it and a kind of sense of belonging exactly yeah feels like that I read you saying that maybe you'd have a, a dance revival when you were 45 and the kids had grown up. And that really interested me because it really resonated with me that one of the best things about once I passed 50 was that I really started to feel like that. I really started to feel like I was having a, I don't want to say renaissance because it's so wanky, but I felt like I was more me than ever, if yeah. you know what I mean. And I was more like, what can I do? And, you know, how can I do it? And where can I go? Than I probably had been for a really long time. Everything's changed so much for you anyway, lately. Are you thinking ahead at all now? Or are you just thinking, well, I'm just learning to do this and it's like, cool. (laughs) I'm always thinking ahead, I guess, in a way, but not that far. I'm thinking more kind of a year or a couple of years ahead at a time. I do think about how I will feel coming out the end of this pandemic, which has kind of come Mm. at the same time as me deciding to like back out, making that kind of decision to slowly back out of DJing there's been a real full stop put on that decision because of the pandemic and I wonder how I'll feel out the back of it will I want to get back in will I feel like a bit FOMO-y when all the DJs are back out on the road and and doing these amazing gigs and I think I probably will feel a bit of that and want to get involved in it in in a way that feels comfortable to me I don't know it's really interesting the idea of turning 40 and becoming a mother as well there's something when you work around young people and and what is deemed as youth music or whatever which is Mm. Radio 1 obviously there's something about crossing the threshold of motherhood and middle-aged where all of your credibility publicly seems kind of like you're not deemed credible anymore in a way do you know what I mean it's hard to articulate I've never said this out loud before but there's something about like just mums aren't 
cool. Middle-aged women aren't cool. They're not in a position to dictate or tell you anything about what culture is and what culture should be. I find that really interesting and I struggled with that a bit and I think I relented to it a little bit. The idea of this is who I am now, thus I'm not that person. And whenever someone talks about my job and the power it brings or, or, or the kind of influence it has, I shy away from that a lot. I don't feel comfortable with the idea of that. But I do think that being in your 40s, in my experience, because I'm only two and a bit years in, is possibly like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I feel like there's like this harem of women who are like angry and passionate and smart and emotionally charged and have shit to say and are so fucking bogged down with the mundanities of life that it's hard to say it and I feel like I love the idea of like middle-aged women coming back and taking over culture and fucking taking over the dance floors and raging basically (laughs) (laughs) I love that because I feel like I went through that exact process of working in journalism looking up and thinking, where the fuck are all the older women? Right. Where has everybody gone? You know, doing my own thing with Lauren with the pool mm-hmm. and all of the staff were really young. And I don't know whether it came from outside or inside, to be fair. I don't know whether it was them or me. Yeah. But I started to feel like you say, like, who the fuck are you anyway? You know, it a bit irrelevant, a bit like I wasn't credible. Like yeah. my opinion didn't count because I was too old. Like I said, I don't know whether that came from them or me. It may well have been an internal shape kind of thing I don't know societal and now that's gone and now I feel like well fuck you actually there's things to do and things to say and we're not going to go quietly into the hinterland and yeah knitting is fine if you you can knit I can't but you know I'm going to do my thing and now my thing might involve knitting and it might involve a blanket on the sofa (laughs) but you know that's yeah that's the thing and also that's why I launched the podcast because I wanted to talk to other women about how they were feeling and what was coming next and Mm. you know so that it didn't feel like if you looked up or you know across that there was nothing to see right and I remember reading a piece in fact it was on Refinery29 and I think she maybe interviewed you as well Sarah Raphael and she was the editor and she wrote a piece where she said basically I'm only just in my 30s and already I can count the number of women to aspire to on one hand and I just thought, whoa. How sad. It's so That's sad. sad and scary. And what do you think causes that? Well, I've been having a lot of conversations about my career recently, obviously with this book happening and podcasts happening and all these new strands I'm adding to it. And I had a bit of an epiphany the other day where I was talking to someone and we were talking about, you know, the various things that I could do. You know, there's these options, especially in the music industry, following a lot of my male colleagues, you know, to the big streaming networks, Apple and Spotify, being on billboards, being on the side of buses you know having this huge cultural weight and this kind of cultural omniscience where you're like everywhere that person who everyone respects and then I I was talking about what I just spoke to you about this idea of this huge this generation generations you know of women who've grown up with me and I feel like they're kind of fiercely loyal to me and what I'm doing and and I feel like that I should be very aware of them and of serving them and 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 talking to them because I am them and that person said well kind of it's up to you like do you want to be like Johnny Big Balls like the big guy on the billboards or do you want to be someone DJing to middle aged women it's up to you and, and it really struck it struck a nerve with me because it was like the middle-aged women are the force for me like they are the the cultural voice that I want to hear from and speak to I am so uninterested in the patriarchy which 
I'm so uninterested in the industry side of the music industry, in the power struggles, the ego struggles. I've seen it. I've seen all the major labels run by men trying to outdo each other, outbid each other for acts. It's fucking exhausting. It's so uninteresting to me. I don't care about status in that way. I care about connection. And that's what's been the big epiphany in the last few years is just what really matters to me. And that's what I care about. So it's kind of, if I can write books and write things and have conversations with people that allow those women to feel seen and heard and stimulated and excited and challenged then that's fucking that's everything that's golden that would be wonderful and that's been a lovely thing to learn that makes me so happy because when you were talking and I was trying desperately not to interrupt but I was like sitting here quietly (laughs) exploding with kind of because that's what it is isn't it it's like the startup experience is like you know add three more noughts you know Mm. tell us some lies about money you know sprinkle it with fairy dust you know which is just Mm. bullshit basically Mm. all that kind of macho stuff and you just you get reach a point where you just think I do not care and the reality is you know we're in that kind of cohort of women I mean I'm older than you who Mm. are like used as an like an insult do you want to just be a DJ to middle-aged women like Mm. fuck off it'd probably be the best party you've ever been to (laughs) yeah I'm I'm there I'm like bag seat tickets when you do that thing Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it? It's a, it is a weird thing. Well, it makes sense because all the gatekeepers are male. All the people who have any sort of power over culture still, unfortunately, at the top levels are pretty much men. So yeah, that's how it works, and the, right? I guess the reality is as well that nobody ever starts an interview with them going, oh, how did you stop your two kids fucking up your career, you know? Well, I've kind of made a point of that. I wrote a thing for Vice years ago. It's one of the first things I ever wrote, actually, about being a female DJ and being asked all the same questions. And it got such a huge reaction. And in that article, it was like, Pete Tong has six children. And I've never once heard anyone be like, how do you do it? You know, <laughs> it's interesting. So, yeah, I do try and make a point as an interviewer when I interview dads to talk about being a father. And what's good is that people are willing to talk about it more and more now and in a lovely way. So I think things are changing, definitely. Cool. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask. Uh, What's your emotional age? Um, My emotional age, I think I'm probably younger, I think, than what my age is. So I'd say my my emotional age is uh, 35, I think. Why 35 specifically? Any reason? Because that's my husband's age. And I feel like, I don't know, I just always feel younger than I am. Like, I've always felt like that. Um, give us a book recommendation. So there's this book. Do you know Carol Shields? Yes. So it's called Unless. I haven't read any of her other books. My mum just lent me this book. And it was actually the book I was reading around the time that I was writing Mother Mother. And it's about a woman who's 43, going on 44. And she's feeling all of the things that I just talked about in terms of the invisibility of her age and the anger that comes with it. And it's such a brilliantly written novel it's very elegant and very simplistic in how she writes but it's very funny it's very angry it's just brilliant I couldn't recommend it higher that's brilliant what advice would you give younger women don't be afraid to be yourself in terms of how to succeed professionally we need women to act like women and still get to the top without having to take on patterns of behaviour or social ways of being that men feel are the ways that work. So be quiet, be empathetic, 
If that's who you are, don't be afraid to do that. And your work, I hope, if it's true and authentic, will shine through. And I feel like don't be afraid of hearing no and saying no. Just keep going. Do you think if enough women do that, it one day break the Johnny Big Bulls (laughs) system? I feel like it's horrifically slow and I feel like because of I've been in this position where I've been a sole woman in a very male dominated world I feel very conscious of how it works where women get to a point where they don't want to compete with the top levels of power which I didn't Mm -hmm. and and, you know obviously I can't generalize there's women who will be so obsessed with the industry and want to have big staff and be in those boardrooms and making those decisions and I really hope that we have more of them but all I can tell you is my experience which is I got to a certain level and I didn't want to because of being a woman a lot of it my decision making process was I didn't want to go further I wanted to turn left and I wanted to do things in a different way in a kind of more gentle creative way And what I feel like is that women maybe won't win or be able to take over from Johnny Big Balls in the way things stand now, but they shouldn't have to because I feel like as more women gain more independence and more confidence of doing things themselves in their own way and succeeding in that and using a female audience and understanding that a female audience can be the biggest, most loyal, you know, audience you can have, you maybe just cancel out the needing men bit at all and having to replace them. You know, you can just do you and be you and speak to the people that you want to and succeed in your way. Who's your old bad role model? I was inspired in my career by a woman called Pam Ghanim, who employed me earlier on in my 20s, and she ran a music kind of PR and new media agency, and I ran her office for her. She was from New York, and she ran this business by herself and represented a lot of amazing people, artists. And she was such an inspiration to me to see a woman run a business in London in a world dominated by men again, to see how she spoke to people, to see how tough she was and how fierce she was. And also, most importantly, how she identified that what I wanted to do wasn't really what I was doing with her. What I wanted to do was radio and how when she discovered that, rather than cast me out, she helped me get in that door and used her contacts to give me uh, an opportunity to get a job at BBC Radio. And that, I feel, is a very inspirational thing to do. When someone goes out of their way to employ you, to train you up, to guide you, then realise that you're not actually going to be able to help them, but helps you anyway. She was a big inspiration to me, and still is. She's a life coach now. Uh, What's your superpower? Maybe the fact that I like doing things. Um, I come from a family of doers, a busy family. We're not very good at sitting still. My father and my sister, we all just have to be doing things all the time, which can be hugely irritating for my husband. But I think it works in terms of professional life because I just like to be busy and I like filling my time with things. (laughs) Uh, Last one, how many fucks do you give? At the moment, very few. Yeah. Yeah. Very few, and it feels fantastic. It's brilliant. Thank you, Annie, so much for all your time. It's such a pleasure. Being brilliant. So nice I'm so to talk cheered. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I said, I feel quite nervous talking about the book, and it was nice to talk about it with you. So thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. 
And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.